your presence by your spirit here this evening, we pray. Amen. Folks, we're coming back uh, tonight to the book of Judges. So if you flick with me, um, we're in chapter 17. It's on page 261, if you're using the, the Bible that's provided there in the pew. Last time we met, Richie dealt with, I think it was three chapters maybe, uh, from the life of Samson. So tonight we're going to read, uh, we're actually just going to read chapter 17, uh, and I'll say a bit more then about how we'll uh, proceed with the text. So Judges 17 on page 261, uh, the title given to the chapter there in the NIV, Micah's Idols. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I'll give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest. And I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year and your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. This is the word of God. Let me pray. Um, Lord, uh, some of what we have looked at so far in the book of Judges we've found uh, hard uh, to get our heads around and hard to, to really grasp what it is that you're saying to us, where the encouragement or where the challenge really lies. Lord, we pray that this evening by your spirit you'd come and uh, make your word live for us. Let us hear you and take to heart what you're saying to us. Amen. 
Tonight, um, this, this might be good news for you, might be very good news. Tonight we're finishing our studies in Judges. Uh, there's been the odd time when we have finished a Bible book when I've thought like throwing a party at the end of the book. And Judges is right up there. It feels like, yep, yeah, um, we could easily have had a, a special cake and uh, some party hats. It's, it's been a tough book in many ways. In my original schedule, I'd planned to preach the the book of Judges over a series of 12 sermons, and we lost one of our sermons in the autumn time, so I think think Gideon was supposed to be over three nights and ended up being over two. And tonight, as uh, we head into the spring, we've lost another service, so that one I mentioned in the announcements, two weeks' time, presbytery service, that was going to be our last Judges. So a 12-part series collapsed into 10. Now, the bad news is we were going to try and do five chapters over the last couple of sittings. Okay, you see where I'm going with this? So tonight we've read chapter 17, but we're finishing the whole of the book. So we're going to need to be a little bit wise about how we deal with this. Actually, when I looked at it, I wondered if it might have been better just to quit after nine and leave the last five chapters altogether. Um, You'll probably have a sense from that story that we just read. It probably reads a bit weird, and it it gets weirder uh, the further on we read these last five chapters. So last time we, we were together, Richie was talking to us about Samson. We know Samson. He's the last of the judges. These guys in the last five chapters aren't even judges. So there would have been grounds for maybe just drawing a line and forgetting the last five chapters altogether. But we're not going to do that. Uh, We're going to trust what God tells us about his word, and that is that it's all uh, useful to us. Just to help you see what's going on here, I don't know if you'll remember this, but when we started the book of Judges, it didn't immediately start with stories of the first judge. It started by giving us a bit of context for what was going on in Israel at the time of the judges. And it was particularly about, I don't know if you remember this, about the tribes taking possession of the land. That was some of the early stuff in chapters 1 and 2. Well, this stuff at the end of the book, gives us a a conclusion. Um, It's a two-story conclusion. Again, it's not dealing anymore with with the actual judges, but it's giving us a bit of an insight into what life was like in the land. I think it's quite quite worth spending an evening on. It's it's a bleak picture, I'll, I'll be honest. Not a very positive picture, but it gives us a picture of what... Uh, life is like when, when God is not on the throne and when people aren't walking in his ways. So these five chapters actually only tell two different stories. Uh, I'm going to say chapters 17 and 18 uh, tell the story of this guy Micah um, and his idols. Uh, chapter 18, you mightn't recognize it immediately. It's a continuation of the same story because the Danites get involved, the tribe of Dan. I'll I'll explain that. And then chapters 19 to 21 tell a different story of a Levite and his concubine, but we'll leave that just for a moment. So let's think briefly about this weird little incident of Micah and the idols. 
it's, it's a little bit weird what's happening there in the opening verses, but it seems that he's just stolen money from his mum. And he's probably overheard her calling down some sort of a curse on the thief. And he thinks to himself, Flip, I'm sitting on the 1100 here. I'd better get this back to her pretty quick in case that curse comes true and it, it, it lands on me. So Micah, from the very outset, isn't, he doesn't seem to be a, a great guy. His mum doesn't seem to be, she seemed to miss the parenting class as well, the, the one where you're taught how to be a good parent. So her son steals from her, gives her the money back, and she says, bless you, my son. Uh, let me give you an idol as a gift. Um, so we'll just get an, an insight into a, a not very functional family here. Micah receives this uh, carved image, this cast idol, and then he keeps them in his house. Turns out he already has a shrine in his house. So he just adds these to whatever's already there. And he makes a priestly robe, uh, an ephod. That's a, a robe for priests. And he installs one of his sons as a priest. So what we have here is somebody who's uh, effectively starting their own religion. Um, it's, it's nice that he's religious. He has some sort of a worshipping instinct but he seems very keen just to plan it all himself. Um, now, the problem with that is that God's already given provisions and guidelines for how he is to be worshipped. Micah just doesn't seem too bothered about that, doesn't seem to faze him. So, for example, the Lord says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything under heaven. That's the second of the famous Ten Commandments. And what does Micah do? He, he makes idols. The Lord says to his people, this tabernacle, and we can read all about that in the book of Exodus, this is to be the place of my presence. What does Micah do? Well, I'll just create another place, a shrine in my uh, house. The priests uh, who will lead my people in worship, God says, will be from the tribe of Levi. Um, or, or they could be my sons. Micah thinks to himself, forget all that. So Micah's into religion, but it's, it's a homemade religion. It has nothing to do with the living God. And it seems to me that it just begs, begs the question, you know, are, are we any less prone to that kind of approach today? Are modern Christians any less prone to that than, than God's people in the past? I doubt it. The living God, you see, stands before us and he says, Worship me as I am, not as you want me to be. Worship me as I've told you, not as your own hearts suggest. Look again at verse 6. Because this is what happens when everyone does as they see fit. Nobody's deliberately rejecting God here. They're just adding a, a shrine. It all, it all looks quite good in some ways. People are religious. They're, they're adding a shrine. But this is, this is all about religion on our own terms. Not about God. Not about truth as he shared it with us. Not about his will. But about me, my ideas, and my preferences. 
Uh, one, one writer I was reading, he put it like this. He said it's a religion that instead of asking, how can I meet with the real God and be remade in his image? It asks a different question. How can I remake God in my image into someone I'm comfortable with? That's, that's a pretty good distinction. I've heard, I've heard somebody say that you become like the thing that you worship. So if, if we worship the true and living God, then over time that has a transforming effect on our hearts and on our lives and does draw us into a likeness to him. But what if, we, what if we're worshiping something else of our own imaginings? Mike is into easy religion. He's into exciting religion, just religion on his own terms. I, I always laugh. I hope there's a, a worship software uh, that you can use to put together PowerPoint services. It's called Easy Worship. And, and that always makes me smile. Um, it's not a great name to give uh, anything that's supposed to help us worship the living God. That's not really what we're looking for, easy worship or exciting worship. We're looking for authentic worship uh, because it has the living God at the center. So Mike is into this designer easy worship. And whenever a real Levite from Bethlehem wanders in, you can sort of see Micah going, brilliant, there's a Levite here. We can get this guy on board and it'll sort of validate my wee shrine here. Uh, So he offers him a job. And in verse 13, we get an insight into Micah's heart. He says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. I think we get a a real insight here into how um, Micah's religion works. He wants to get access to God so that he can get God to do what he wants. And it's exactly the opposite of what true faith is about. True faith is not about getting God to do what we want. It's about opening our hearts to the Lord so that he trains us to do what he wants. Designer religion, all about how God serves me. The faith that's brought about by the gospel, all about opening our hearts so that we learn to serve God. We're moving beyond the passage that we've read here. So chapter 18, probably the best thing to do is just keep an eye on this as I talk, skim, and and see if you can follow some of the things that are going on in the text. In chapter 18, what we see is a whole tribe, the tribe of the Danites, joining in with Micah. The story of Micah becomes the story of the tribe of Dan. One thing about the tribe of Dan at this point, we're told in chapter 18, verse 1, that this tribe was seeking a place of their own where they might settle. Now, the book of Judges began with with tribes finding a home and settling. So what's going on? How come Dan still doesn't have a home? Why are they still a homeless tribe? Well, it's because of what we read back there in chapter 1. All the other tribes, at least in part, fulfilled God's command and took a part of the land. They fought courageously. They drove the Canaanites out of the the inheritance God had given them. Dan failed entirely, miserably. 
So they were confined to the hill country. You can read about that in chapter 1, verse 34. So they don't even get into the land. They're like nomads, and they have been for this uh, long period of time. I, I didn't know really much about this uh, until I was, I was reading on this this week. They're a picture of the weakest among God's people. In Revelation chapter 7, we're given a vision of the, the crowd, the multitude gathered around the throne in heaven under God's care. And there's a list of the tribes of Israel included. And guess who's not on it? Dan? Not present at the end of all things. The Danites, as we've already said, they behave pretty much like Micah. They have this idolatrous view of God. They don't care about God's word. You see, God's already told them where to live. But what do they do? They go to Micah's shrine and ask this Levite priest whether their scouting expedition to a totally different area is going to be successful. God says, live here. And we go and ask, "Mm, Lord, should we live here? They take the assurances of this pagan Levite working in an idol shrine, and that becomes their basis uh, for their taking the land in their own strength without any suggestion that they're relying on God. So these Danites, they have historically refused to listen to God. They're now talking in verse 10 of chapter 18 about a spacious land that God has put into our hands a land that lacks nothing whatsoever. I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot like promised land. Talk to me. So they're rewriting the promised land contract. It's like a designer destiny. If Micah's into designer religion, these guys are writing a whole new story of what God has for them. So on their way, they pass Micah's house. They plan to steal his idol from him. And whenever the Levite, the Levite must catch them on or something, whenever he challenges them, them he, they offer him a job. It's, it's not good. Nothing much in these chapters is good. They say to him, sure, why don't you come with us? Grow your ministry. Why would you look after one wee household shrine when you can be priest to a whole tribe? Not surprisingly, the Levite goes along with it. He's a guy who started off serving God and he ends up in a life of self-promotion. This, this is sobering stuff uh, for the likes of me, for anyone who's in leadership or ordained ministry. This Levite only seems to make decisions to serve himself. He's happy to leave his original calling in Bethlehem. He'll work for anyone who offers him money. He tells people what they want to hear and he moves on as soon as a better offer comes along. It's hard to see a decision that he's made that isn't governed by self-interest. And each one takes him further from the Lord. Have Have a look. Whenever we're first introduced to him, chapter 17, verse 7, we're told that he's a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who's been living within the clan of Judah. Now, is there a better place to be from 
than Bethlehem in Judah. Like, have we ever heard of that place? Does it have any role historically in the life of God's people? This guy's from Bethlehem in Judah. That's where he starts out. But he moves up into the hill country of Ephraim. He starts to look after an idol shrine, and he ends up in Lash, which is beyond the bounds of the land that God had given to his people, working for a tribe who won't even be recognized in heaven. And I'm sure all the while he thinks he's the boy. Because he's had the big promotions. The ministry's got bigger and bigger. But he started in Bethlehem of Judah and ends up outside the promised land with a a, a disenfranchised people. What should Dan the tribe of Dan and this guy Micah have been doing instead. Well, the last verse of chapter 18 hints at it. We're told that they continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. So while they're worshiping homemade idols in Micah's shrine, they could have been worshiping the true and the living God. God had given them a place to worship him. The tabernacle in Shiloh should have been the the focus of Micah's life and the life of the tribe of Dan. And it's the same for us today. We have a tabernacle. Isn't that what John tells us in the opening chapter of his gospel? He tells us that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us Jesus Christ is the place where God has come to be with his people. If we don't center our lives on him, if we don't make him the place where we meet with the living God, then we're every bit as foolish and disobedient as Micah and the Danites in our passage this evening. It's a passage about true worship in contrast to false worship. We're going to break there for a second and sing a couple of songs together just to to respond to what we've heard so far. So these last three chapters of Judges, they tell actually one story, uh, the story of a Levite and his concubine, as we're told there, Uh, in the heading to chapter 19. We're told of what happens with this Levite and his concubine and the aftermath of their particular uh, events throughout the the whole life of Israel. Who knows this story? Hands up if you know it. Don't, Don't worry if you don't. I'm just trying to get a feel. It's pretty esoteric. It's not, uh, it's not part of the Sunday school curriculum. Um, for reasons that you'll uh, see. Why don't you keep this passage open? I I was going to read chapter 19, but in the end I thought um, maybe we'll just try to move through it pretty quickly. Skim as I try to retell the story. Again, it's a Levite, different one than the last time. And he takes a concubine from Bethlehem. Bad start. 
What's a Levite doing taking a second-class wife, uh, a sex object? If you have a concubine, you probably already have a wife. And God had always told his people that he intended marriage to be for one man and one woman. And the history of God's people shows that they often, particularly in those early days, followed the pagan culture. They took multiple wives, and it never ends well. There's not a story in the whole of Scripture where the multiple wives is presented as a good thing. And there are lots of stories of heartache. Anyway, she's unfaithful to him, and she returns home to her father's house in Bethlehem. So the Levite goes to Bethlehem to get her back, and it's kind of weird because the, the woman's dad treats him like royalty. Um, it turns out in that culture, for the woman to leave the man is an outrageous thing to do. So probably what we have going on here is that this man is ashamed, this father, and he's nervous that the, the Levite is somehow aggrieved and that he could possibly press charges against him and his family. So you have the, the woman's father treating the, the Levite like royalty. He, he has this wonderful hospitality day after day of a welcome. But after a five-day visit, the two men agree among themselves that the woman will go back to Bethlehem with the Levite. It's awful, uh, the way these men treat this woman. They treat her as if she was their property. They're the ones having the conversations. She's not asked anything about the situation. The, the father wants her to go back, as I say, probably to avoid some trouble or disgrace. The Levite wants her back so he can continue his sexual gratification, but nobody cares about her. One thing to notice about this story, the, the writer uses a, a literary technique. He doesn't give anybody in this story a name. And when you do that, when you tell a story and you don't use names, what you can do is you can sort of use your characters as types. And what, what we mean by that is we say that the behavior of this character and this character is typical of what other people were getting up to at the time. So the narrator wants us to see this as typical behavior. He wants us to be saying to ourselves, so this is how Levites were living in those days. This is how fathers were behaving. This is how women were being treated. So it's a dark picture, isn't it? But it's about to get a whole lot darker. The Levite sets off for home with his concubine, and, and he needs a place to stay for the night. Um, he, he's why we're, we're shown that he's discerning. He's not just going to go anywhere. He's not going to go anywhere dangerous or stupid. So he passes by the city of Jebus, which is, is Jerusalem. It's not yet uh, a, an Israelite city. It's still a Canaanite city that hasn't yet been captured, and he knows that that would be a dangerous place to go. He says, no, let's not stay in Jebus. Let's move on. Let's go to Gibeah, an Israelite city in the tribe of Benjamin. When he gets to Gibeah, he doesn't receive the normal hospitality there. The normal hospitality says that if a stranger arrives in your city, somebody welcomes them in. Whenever they're seen, somebody welcomes them into their house. 
And that doesn't seem to happen, at least in the first instance. Instead, we get an old man, verse 16, who himself is a stranger from the hill country of Ephraim. He meets this Levite. He talks to him and he warns him, don't, whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. And you're reading the story and you're thinking, well, why not? What's so dangerous about the square? This isn't the wilderness. It's not a Canaanite city. This is a town in Israel. Surely it's okay. You're safe in Israel. It's not okay. Verse 22. Some of the wicked men from the city come. They pound on the door of the old man's house. And they say to him, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. It's vile. Um, So the old man tries to put them off, but they won't listen to him. And in the end, the Levite sends out his concubine, and I guess the modern terms, we'd call it a gang rape of this concubine. Going on through the night until she falls down in the door, step and lies there unconscious till daytime. So, it's probably no bad thing that we haven't read this story very often. Or Does it remind you of anything in the Bible? Have you come across a story where, where this one resonates? You're, you're maybe thinking of Sodom. Genesis 19. There's an incident, you could read it there, that's not, not unlike this one. Sodom is the Old Testament archetype for a sinful city. If you want to talk about sinful behavior and God's judgment on sin, you talk about Sodom. And it seems to me that the parallel here is that we have Sodom in the background as this story is being told and retold, and we have an Israelite city of Gebeah engaged in exactly the same behavior, and the message is clear, and you can't miss it. These are God's people now. These are the ones who have Abram as their father, the ones who, who had the law through Moses, the ones who have been rescued out of Egypt, whom God in his grace has repeatedly rescued these last few hundred years with this cycle of judges. He's been rescuing them over and over again. And despite all of that, they are behaving like and have become Sodom. They've reached the low point. They've gone as low as it's possible for a nation to go. We're almost out of time, and we're not going to deal with chapters 20 and 21, but I can tell you in one minute what the content of those two chapters is. Chapter 20, as uh, the, the heading there suggests, Israel ends up fighting against Benjamin. Instead of, you know, the, the, the news of this incident goes around the land, and instead of them saying, goodness, some people in the city of Gibeah have done a terrible thing, we need to hold them to account, we need to, we need to minister some justice, Instead of saying that, they say, no, let's go and wipe out the whole tribe of Benjamin. 
and it leads to a civil war. And chapter 20 tells this story of how the tribe of Benjamin comes to within a hair's breadth of being wiped out. It's a a rash and entirely disproportionate act of vengeance. And it almost leads, as I say, to the loss of a tribe. And chapter 21 tells a, a rather bizarre story of how the the rest of Israel realized, flip, we've we've nearly wiped out the whole of the tribe of Benjamin. There were a few men left, but we have made this promise that we can't give our daughters to them as wives. So how's how's Benjamin ever going to be repopulated? And you you read about the, the bizarre steps that they take. Whenever you read these two chapters together, or these three chapters together, it reads like a country spiraling out of control. If I took these five chapters together, I'd say the first two chapters we looked at was when worship goes wrong and descends into nothing. And now we have the the political life of the nation spiraling downwards out of control. And the narrator tells us, he gives us a frame for the whole of this this section. He begins in chapter 19, verse 1, and he ends in chapter 21, verse 25. He repeats the phrase, in those days Israel had no king. He says people were doing what was fit in their own eyes. And here we have to try and wrap all this up and see, well, what, what's this book of Judges finally all about? I don't know if I've ever preached a more frustrating book in the Bible. It's left me very frustrated, very dissatisfied. It's wick. But then I wonder if the message isn't in the medium. I wonder if we aren't supposed to feel frustrated and dissatisfied as we come to the end of this book. A lot of the commentators reckon that the the author of Judges is a fan of King David and he's trying to he's trying to encourage support for David's rule. It's as though he's saying, look at how bad life is when people are left to their own devices. We need something more than these um episodic, charismatic military chieftains. We need permanent kings. Whether or not it's true that this narrator is trying to promote the kingship and King David, there's one thing he can't deny. He makes a pretty good case for the insufficiency of human beings left to their own devices. If if the story continued along the trajectory of the book of Judges, we're not going to make it. The spiral continues downwards and it doesn't bear thinking about. At the end of this book, we're frustrated. We're, we're looking for something different. We, we know that we need a savior, someone to make it better than it is. And we've already seen these judges come and go. Things only got worse while we had the judges. If, if you know your history of, of the people of God, you'll know that God eventually gives them kings. Tell me this. Did that solve all their problems? 
the spiral continues downwards and downwards. The kings don't deliver what the people have longed for. We need somebody greater than even the greatest of human kings. This book of Judges, I think, serves in the end to sharpen our appetite, to show us lots of ways, lots of different ways in which we need a new king. We need a king who'll come. Lots of times in the book of Judges, the people cry out for someone to save them, for God to save them. Folks, we need a king who'll come even when we're not crying out because we don't cry out, we don't look for God. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. There is no one who seeks God. We won't be able to choose a king for ourselves. He'll have to choose us. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 15. This deliverer is going to have to do it all by himself because we can't contribute anything to our salvation. God in his word tells us that this deliverer isn't going to save us through, through strength, but rather through weakness, a victorious kind of defeat. It won't be through his life, but, but in the end through his death. We need a king who can change us on the inside, not just our society. The author of Judges, I think, ends up stirring up our appetite for a king but it's going to have to be a greater king than any king who's ever ruled before. Folks, for now we all need to search for that king. Someone to rule us, someone to rescue us. There's only one person who provides what we're looking for. The ultimate king, the ultimate judge, the ultimate savior. We're either serving him or else we'll keep on serving the false gods. Let's join together and let's pray.